On the Way to New Work Podcast. Heute mit Christoph Magnussen. Michael wäre gerne dabei gewesen, aber ich hatte die Chance, ein Event zu besuchen und hier auf einem Event zu sprechen in Bayern am Tegernsee. And I will switch to English right now because the guest I'm having is Warren Rustend. And I feel very privileged that you take the time sitting here with me. Thank you for being here, Warren. Thank you very much for the invitation. This podcast is about new work, how work is changing and what technology does and influences us, but also about the purpose of work. And you're a person who I just met recently, I have to say, last year in, uh, in December, November, I experienced you the first time in Washington, D.C. And I have to like maybe paint a picture. Warren was the guy who was in the room when Nixon, President Nixon of the United States, entered the room to tell Gerald Ford, his vice president back then, that he will become president. Is that correct? Yes. So that is Warren Russell. And he's a very special personality. He's a, he's a great human being. So it's very hard for me to describe everything you've done to give a little glimpse into what you've been doing. It started as a professional basketball player. Then you became advisor to the president of the United States. This is definitely something we will talk about because I learned a lot from that. You became a very successful entrepreneur. You're a father of seven. You are a great husband, as I learned. So there's a lot, a lot of things. Can you like give us a little glimpse into like what drives you and describe who you are? Well, I have a, uh, grew up with a great passion for people and a wonderful love of people. And I'm intrigued by people. And so I'm open to the possibilities that each of us has. And I'm uh, influenced by that possibility to become the discovery of potential. And so I've always been engaged in finding people's potential and helping them achieve their own success. And so that's allowed me to have some interesting experiences. And my experiences are no better or worse than anyone else's in life, but they're just different. And I've learned from those differences. You're very humble. I, uh, that's, that's the one thing I know because like, Other than, than a lot of startup entrepreneurs who are very loud, you're a very calm person, you always smile, you're very polite to people, no matter how stressed you are. And I remember asking you in Washington, we had a dinner, and you invited us like across the White House, showed us the White House, and you told us how the president's schedule looked like before you came to the office. So what changed? Can you describe that a little bit? Because that stayed with me. Well, so often people in power and position end up responding to those who want to see them or responding to circumstances and situations. And the president of the United States, for whom I worked, Gerald Ford, was likewise. He received scores and scores of invitations each day for his time. And yet if he ended up just responding to those invitations, he wouldn't necessarily work on those things that were most important for his administration. So as we were thinking about that, we determined that we would set an agenda based on his highest priorities and then schedule his time around those highest priorities so that the end of his administration, he could look to those priorities to see if he'd been successful or not, and he could actually talk about those successes over the course of his administration. And so we began then to set the schedule, his schedule, based on his highest priorities. And all of his time, virtually all of his time, was geared toward specific activities which supported those highest priorities. And what we found over time was that he had significant gains. He made significant progress on his very highest priorities. Now, when you're president, you're not the only one that controls the, the outcomes, right? There's the Congress, there's the judicial branch, there are other factors. 
But uh, President Ford, at the end of his three and a half years in office, actually left quite a legacy. He had tremendous success. And I attribute that to his ability to focus on what was most important. So this is something you then took to personal life and set your own priorities. And it always sounds so very simple. And we yes. do this exercise again and again and yes. again. So how did you transfer that for yourself? Well, I, over time, I began to understand that there were really four buckets or categories that were very important in my life. First was family. Second was business. Third was community. And fourth was self. And that's how I prioritize them. Others might prioritize them differently, mm -hmm. but that was my order. And then I determined that if I wanted to be successful in those four categories, I had to set my highest priorities, just as the President of the United States had set. And after setting a priority, I needed to set specific activities with times and dates by which I would accomplish those in order to achieve my highest priorities. And so what I found was, like the President, I found that I could have good progress and even success by following that pattern. And so my schedules each day were composed of activities in those four categories that drove me toward accomplishing the highest priorities in each category. And I found it a simple and easy way to execute my life and schedule and allowed me perhaps to have more success than I would have had under other circumstances. What I really like about that is that although it feels like a very tight schedule and very filled, and we now talk about the technique, but there was purpose behind that. Yes. Because... Every time you're in the room, you give people the feeling, me the feeling right now, you're undivided, you have your undi I have your undivided attention. And you told me of a moment when you met Nelson Mandela at yes. the White House yes. and the story how he gave you undivided attention. Can you like tell that story again? Because that's... Well, I was, I was very impressed and I, he is someone I always wanted to meet and I had studied him and observed him from a distance and thought he had wonderful attributes and qualities, both as a young activist when he protested apartheid in South Africa, and during his time in prison when I can only imagine it was extremely difficult, and yet he won over the guards, he won over other prisoners uh, by, by way of his personality and the way he treated them. And when he left the, the prison island where he was held captive for 27 and a half years, the guards lined the dock and applauded him and thanked him for being there. And so when he became president of South Africa, and just actually prior to his presidency, he traveled to the United States. And uh, he happened to be in an environment where I was also in that environment, and he had Secret Service agents with him, but I wanted to meet him, and so I walked up. The Secret Service agents said no, but Mr. Mandela heard my voice when I said I'd like to meet Mr. Mandela, and he invited me to come and sit with him on the couch. And I had this wonderful experience of about 45 minutes where I had a chance to talk with the leader of South Africa. And he was the most gentle, kind, focused man. His eye contact was terrific. It was as if I was the only person in the room. And there were others clamoring to see him, mm -hmm. you know, wanted to talk to him and so forth. And yet he had an ability to focus, which I found uh, tremendously attractive and very interesting. And his soft-spoken voice. His other ability was the ability to ask questions. Who are you? What are your interests? What's your family about? Uh, you know, things that he didn't need to know about me. I was just a young man at the time. And then he showed an interest and even a passion for the things that I was pursuing. And I found those qualities admirable. And as a result of that, I've tried to incorporate many of those in my own life.
And it's how we treat each other with respect in every interaction that defines who we are. That's really our character. And I think it's important that we display the kind of character we truly are and want to be all the time. I experienced it this morning when we were riding with a taxi here and you had this conversation. You were asking everyone and uh, I can see the interest. And one thing that comes along with that is that you you want to serve others. That's that's what you're saying. To put that in the perspective, um, just, just to have these two sides that people can paint a picture of you, like becoming a successful entrepreneur. We talk a business of what size? Uh, our largest company was $2.1 billion in revenue, 17,000 employees, 15 countries. And you're, you were the CEO acquiring, doing the strategy, doing the IPO and all that stuff. Yes. And your overall focus is to serve people. Yes. And you take the time. And people sometimes have the feeling, okay, there's the CEO of this huge company not having time. How can I reach him? And then you're here so focused. How does that fit together, serving people and that, that success? Well, my personal purpose in life is to improve the human condition wherever I find it. And that's driven us to own businesses that are largely in the healthcare space or the human services space, social services space, which um, allows us, therefore, to serve people. And so it's very easy for me to serve my personal mission and purpose as well as uh, serve other people in the course of my business experience. What was first? Like, did, have you became clear, clear about your purpose and then start the business? And how did you come to the purpose? Well, I think as early as possible, all of us would like to define our purpose and have it very clear. And that's not always easy. And sometimes it takes years, even decades, to, for us to find our absolute purpose. And when we do that, we release unbelievable energy because it allows us to, to, to do what we do with passion with drive, with energy. And that's different than just having a job. It's different than just building a company. If we can combine the job or the company with our passion and our purpose, we're simply better at it. We enjoy it more. We bring more to that situation than we would otherwise. And I believe passion is one of the great qualities that we can bring to anything that we do. And the nicest thing would be for all of us to be able to do what we want to do most what we love to do. And when we do that, we do it in a different way than we would if we're just collecting a paycheck or just making money. But really when we serve our heart, then we become people of purpose. What do you think in a noisy world that we live in today with a lot of technology? I'm the technology side. You know me now yes. quite a bit. So I'm always supporting new technology, fast communication. But at the same time, I'm also a big fan of meditation. <clears throat> so, but in, in this noisy world and these extremes, what would you recommend people to, to do in order to find this purpose? Because I find it fascinating. And I remember at, when we met in Washington, that was the last thing I still had blank. Like, what is my life purpose? Who am I? That was the question. I'm like, oh, that's tough to answer. What, like, does it happen at a certain day or does it come? Or what do you do? Well, it doesn't just come. Uh, for some, perhaps it's just pure inspiration. And for others, maybe it's even revelation. Um, where it just appears to them and they know. But for many of us, we have to experience different things. We have to work at it. We have to study it and think about it. I believe we can only do that in a busy, noisy world if we create space and silence to find out for ourselves. And I think we have to do that through meditation, through yoga, through daily discipline and routine, by creating space in our calendar so we can have quiet. 
And when we have quiet moments, we tend to be more reflective, more introspective, we think deeper about things, and that allows us, I believe, to begin the process of discovery. And if we're willing to create that space and that silence, the quiet time, then I do believe we can find out our purpose. How do you do that, managing 17,000 people, having a family of seven children, grandchildren by now? How many grandchildren do you have? 19. 19 grandchildren, yes, okay. Yeah. So how do you do that? How do you create that space? Let's, let's talk about routine, getting up, starting the day. How do you mm -hmm. do that? Well, every day I start uh, by having, uh, when I first wake up, I sit on the edge of my bed for one minute and I ask myself, why am I alive today? Meaning, what is my purpose today? So I want to discover my purpose for the day because if I can live with purpose one day, it frees me to be passionate about what I do and to be prepared for what I do. Then I take 10 minutes and I spend 10 minutes in gratefulness. And that could be meditation. It could be something else for people. But for me, it's just 10 minutes being grateful for everything in my life, my family, my business, whatever it is. And then I take 10 minutes and I read from great authors, but only positive thoughts, nothing negative. And then I spend 10 minutes journaling and writing what's great about my life and what's happening in my life and the experiences that I've had over the, for the previous day or two or three. And that becomes a legacy and a gift to my children when I die. Uh, they'll have their, in their father's handwriting daily entries about what he's done in his life. And so I think if we have those disciplines, I'm now 31 minutes into my day. And I believe my mind is in a very positive, very wholesome place. And then I go work out. And then I eat well. It's the fuel that our body needs. And then we enter into the most important part of the day, right? It, it's the control of time and the management of time. And each of us who are busy, need to understand that we control our time. And if we're too busy and hectic and stressed, it's our own fault. That we own our life experiences and we have to own the experience that we have in each interaction. And so over the course of a day, we have 86,400 seconds in a day. And over the course of the day, I want to utilize those seconds to the highest purpose I can. And that means doing the right things, the most important things, my highest priorities, It means keeping a relative balance between the four categories of my life, business, family, community, and self. And it means creating open space and quiet times where I can reflect and think. And so if I control my own schedule, I have no, really, no reason to be stressed, do I? If you're an employee listening right now, what could you recommend? They don't have the personal assistant right now. They have the feeling they have to attend a certain meeting. What do you recommend? I recommend that they practice oscillation. And that's the notion uh, like interval training. It's utilizing our resources and energy to accomplish what's most important. Then taking time, only a few minutes, to recover from that explosion of energy. And then to renew and explode again. And then to recover and to renew and explode again. And research would indicate that through a process of oscillation, we actually are more effective over the course of a day than if we simply go from one activity to another over the course of the day. And therefore, you become a more effective and important employee because you're actually performing at a higher level. And that's really what every person wants to do. If you talk about quiet space during your day, you told me you do like 120 phone calls a day, 150 emails a day. Where do you find the time yeah. to like think or sit or yeah. stuff like so, that? 
my office and I, I receive 150 emails a day. I get 120 phone calls a day, but I don't actually do all of those, right? So what we do is we sift through those so we can address the most important issues. And we return the phone calls that are most important as well. And then we take care of other things over time as necessary. We don't treat every single text, email, uh, paper mail, uh, telephone call with the same level of importance. We try to sort among them to be certain, again, that we're always addressing our highest priorities. Mm -hmm. So you're not reacting like a lot of people receiving messages. You wouldn't react to a WhatsApp message if I send it to you. No. Unless I would say it's an emergency. If you said, uh, I really need a response in the next 24 hours, or I must talk to you right now, this is really important in my life, then we'll respond or I will respond. But most of the interaction using current technology uh, doesn't require an immediate response. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, we find ourselves wanting to respond immediately, but it just doesn't require an immediate response. How have you seen work changing and when people now talk about new work it's often related to oh i want to work at a certain place wherever i want to live or i want to work with a certain technology change my job this is this fashionable word do you have an opinion on that well technology is enabling us to make different choices than we could have made during the industrial revolution or during a period of agronomy around the world when people lived on farms and so forth so we we've seen this marvelous technology be birthed and now a part of our lives and so Geographic location is an important. Uh, we're transnational in that we can pick up a device and we can move goods, services, money across geography, boundaries, state or country uh, without regard uh, to those boundaries. And so we have almost limited app limitless application of these new technologies, which should, use as, should be an asset to us to enhance all of our lives. Unfortunately, We, we often use it to keep us too busy mm. and with too much stress. But if we manage our technology correctly, then why can't we work virtually? Uh, why can't we live where we want to live? Why can't we work the hours that are best suited for us? And so what I've seen in my lifetime is enormous change in the workplace. And I believe we're only at the beginning of the change that we're going to see over the next decade or two that are going to fundamentally alter the work state as we've known it for centuries. What do you see coming like when you talk about that? What is, what is Well, the ability to move money without banks and without using banks, right? Blockchain. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the ability to, uh, to live wherever we want to live, however remote, mm -hmm. right? and still communicate effectively across the globe. Uh, the, the ability to uh, raise families and keep families close, even though they're in different geographic locations using technology. So all kinds of things. I think, I think that um, work is going to become more important and the quality of work to individuals, but titles will become less important. I think we now have this sense that we have these all-knowing, omnipotent CEOs who make these grand decisions. Um, and I think we'll move to self-directed workforces mm -hmm. where small groups of employees would, will control assets, determine schedules, levels of service, resources, both human and fiscal, that they need in groups of eight, 10, 12. And they'll each have coaches or monitors, mentors perhaps, that'll assist them in that process. But the traditional layers of management that we've used in traditional organizational charts, I believe will disappear over the next 20 or 25 years. They simply won't be used. They won't be necessary. What do you think are skills that the person who's maybe now 15, 20 years old, what are skills that they should really 
work on or have an eye on? We work hard in the educational institutions in the United States to seek change because education is a very tradition-bound kind of uh, thinking. And as a result, maybe not changing as rapidly as the world is changing. And therefore, our children who are being educated in the schools today may not become as well-prepared as we think they should be. My focus would be, and I tell our grandchildren and our children, that we have to focus on technology as an acquired skill and knowledge. And in addition to that, mathematics. I think those two things are going to be drivers in our future societies. Why mathematics? Because I think it's, um, it suggests a way of thinking and a rationalization and a logical process. And I think we'll need those to work with technology over time. So I think that'll be helpful. I think there'll be lots of new things that'll be driven by mathematics and, and science and technology. And I think that, you know, all the studies that I'm seeing, futuristic studies, will suggest, at least in the United States, that 50% of the jobs that we have today will be gone in mm -hmm. 25 years. That suggests a significant economic dislocation unless there's a massive re-education and recommitment to education in a different way. You, you talked about today, uh, I wrote down, you said we're living in an exponential, exponential society compared to a linear society. Yes. What do you mean by that? Well, I think we've grown up in societies, at least I did, grew up in a society where one kind of activity or one piece of work would simply be followed by another. And the cumulative total of that, day after day, time after time, would bring you to a successful conclusion. That was when you, for example, started as a basketball player. And working at the, the White, White House, House early in my career and so forth. And what I've seen over time is that technology has in introduced exponentiality, right? It's this notion that things work in multiples. Mm. And so the one thing we do today may create an end result, which is five times what we started with in a very short period of time. And the shelf life of technology is something under six months today. And so as a result of that, everything are now multiples of time. Everything is accelerating in our ability to do right? So we can do almost everything in a shorter time frame than we previously could. And so I think it's, it's more exponential than it is arithmetic. Okay, I got it. I got it. So when you mentioned that, that one of your areas that you work on is not only the business side, not the family, but also the community. Yes. And you invest a lot of time and you promote that as well. And um, I, when, when I listened to you, I was thinking like, okay, family at home, I have the business, I have myself, how should I do that? And then I listen to you and say like, oh, that's all we did. Like, what are, what are things you're doing and how come you're so passionate about that, doing that? Well, I believe that uh, as entrepreneurs and as CEOs, we're uniquely qualified to take our skills to the community to benefit the community. I also believe it should be required of us. We should think of it as an obligation that we have, that we make our living from the community And therefore, we have to give back to that same community. All right? It's a statement of goodwill. It's a statement of commitment that's really important. And I believe it's more than, I think that's the part that needs to come from the heart, not from the head. I think we have to be very, very passionate about the community. We have the opportunity um, to treat people as they can become, not as they are. And we then can commit our resources to assist them in becoming just that. And so I believe we have this obligation corporately and individually, to take our leadership skills to the community to help NGOs, not-for-profit organizations, organizations that are dealing with very tough human problems, mm. 
homelessness, addiction, abusive behaviors, schizophrenia, depression, a host of things where we can use those resources to help people become productive citizens. And I think if we do that, we've paid an enormous dividend for the good things that happened to us and for which we're grateful. I think we're paying back to the community. And so I think it's an obligation that we have. Mm. And you you mentioned a situation You don't have to answer that, but I know I know it's a very personal. But I wanted to ask: you had the story about times when you really had your ego taking over. You sold your, or you took your company public, or sold it. I, I don't remember exactly. Sold it, yes. You sold it. You bought uh, the plane, the car, uh, the boat, and uh, and it was your wife who grounded you back again. So. Can you share that experience? Yes. I, uh, perhaps like uh, many entrepreneurs, we sometimes and occasionally have success and on the journey. And we might uh, monetize our company or sell it in a way that creates wealth for us. Mm. And um, I thought I had a pretty good value set. Uh, but in that instance, I strayed from my core values and I exercised poor judgment and simply spent a lot of money. And uh, my wife, who grounds me in everything, Uh, suggested that uh, we think about it in a different way. And during that period of time, she and I were leading a group to India. We had a wonderful time. It was very successful. And as we were getting ready to return home, my wife informed me that she had another activity planned for us. And that activity was to go to help Mother Teresa's charities, one week with the Center for Dying Patients and one week for the Center for the Adoption of Special Needs uh, Handicapped Children. And as we worked with those dying patients, and realized uh, as people are nearing death that money is the last thing on their mind. Material wealth isn't what they're about. It's about relationships. It's about love. It's about caring. And as we went to visit the children who had deformities and disabilities, and we held them and we fed them and we kissed them and we hugged them, knowing that perhaps none of them would ever be adopted into a normal family, um, it brought me back in balance. And it demonstrated to me that everything is more important in life than money and the things that money will buy. And so when we got home, we sold the plane and the boats and the car, and we used that money to benefit others. And that was an important lesson for me, and I'm not the one who did that. My wife gave me the perspective and the judgment to do that, and I think that was very helpful to me personally. Thanks. That's, um, <clears throat> thanks for sharing that story. So in, in your life, if you look through all the different things you experience, like who's the person who touched you the most? Is it? Oh, my wife first, obviously, because she has tremendous influence with yeah. me and has helped me become a, a better father and grandfather and a better person. Uh, she's a terrific person. Um, and uh, so, and then along the way, I've met some just really interesting people, each of whom has influenced me to a smaller or larger extent. I try to borrow from people, learn from people, everyone, including yourself. You've had influence on me. You may not know that by what you've done and what you're doing, which I think is very valuable. So I, each of us can learn from others in, in every way. And none of us uh, are in a perfect state or have learned everything we have to learn. And so acquiring knowledge and continuing to learn is really fundamental for us. Thanks a lot. And you said, like you you try to make that your rhythm every day also to read and and also to think of stuff if you would have five books where you would say okay christoph these five books in that row this is what you should read i think you can count 100 now right like <laughs> but well, like these five books are must reads you should have 
Yeah, there are lots of great books. The first uh, among those books for me would be uh, True North, written by Bill George. I, th I just think that's really interesting. Um, I think he sets forth a notion that if we develop our internal compass first, mm -hmm. driven by purpose, that everything else in life works out pretty well. And he gives numerous examples of that. So uh, that would be uh, a, a book that I like right away. Another book that I like because it inspires me is The 100 Greatest Speeches Ever Given. And I read that often. Every speech is by a distinguished person. So it's Winston Churchill or Gandhi or Mandela uh, or Eleanor Roosevelt, you know. It's just wonderful speeches. And um, I get inspired by the way they thought, their time in history, when they gave the speech. Um, and, and all of that, I think, is, uh, is really helpful to me. So um, I think those two books would be among uh, the foremost. A very practical book I, I like is uh, a book written by uh, Colin Powell when he just after he left as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff of the United States, subsequently becoming Secretary of State. And it's the Powell Principles. And there are 12 principles that guide his life and that he lives every day. And I watched him in the White House uh, do that very thing. And so therefore, I think uh, it, learning from other people's principles and values and thinking about them and gaining perspective on them. And he does that in his book. It was his very first book. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, that was, that was really helpful. So that would be a third book for me. Um, a fourth book that I like a lot is written by Stephen Covey Jr. And it's called The Speed of Trust. And this notion that organizations that have high levels of trust operate more efficiently and effectively than those that have low levels of trust. There's an actual real cost to a lack of trust. And I had never thought of organizations in that way or cultures, corporate cultures in that way. But as I thought about it and began to apply those principles, they're absolutely true. You know? So that, that might be a fourth book that among those um, that I would think would be interesting reading, you know, just interesting mm -hmm. reading. The fifth book is more elusive probably for me, but I, there are so many that I like. Um, it'd be harder for me to, to tell you what that fifth book might be. But there are some really excellent books on corporate strategy and business strategy that have been written. And I gain from each of them because I think strategy is so fundamentally important for CEOs and entrepreneurs to focus sufficient amount of energy on where we're going in the future and how I'm going to get this company there for a CEO is really, really excellent. The CEOs that struggle, I've found, uh, keep themselves too busy with minutia and don't focus on the big picture and driving forward. The, the fundamental for corporate executives is to take sufficient time every day to think about their future of their business and where they're going. It's the obligation we have to our shareholders, uh, to our investors, to our management team uh, to figure that out. And so strategy becomes really important. And there wouldn't be any one book on strategy, mm. but I think there's some significant books on strategy out there that ought to be read regularly by CEOs. So I would say those would be the five things that I would mention. That's uh, usually what I feel when I I have a meeting with you. I have the feeling, okay, I need to go back to my job, which which is actually thinking, not doing all the time, and take the time to think and not do all the time. That's right. It's a great location here because we don't have internet reception here. So <laughs> I cannot be distracted on that. Well, the, the great example, you and I have both seen the video of Bill Gates and Warren Buffett in a conversation. Mm -hmm. And Bill Gates said, well, as CEO, I thought I had to fill my calendar every day with lots of activities and lots of stuff. And then I asked to see 
Warren Buffett's calendar. And so Warren gave me his calendar. And I looked at the month of April. And in the entire month, he only had three entries for the entire month. And uh, Warren Buffett quickly added. He said, well, I might add a fourth sometime soon. Uh, the whole th time thing. Buffett spends his time thinking and strategizing yeah. and, and projecting the future. And Gates had gotten caught up in doing too many things. As a result of that, Bill Gates changed his whole scheduling process and now has much more open time for thinking. And out of that was born the Gates Foundation and the Gates entry into solving world and global problems mm. of a significant nature. So thinking really matters. I like that. Do you see any young, tremendous entrepreneurs out there where you could say young people should have an eye on these entrepreneurs? Did you like, do you look at them? Oh, I think there are uh, tremendous entrepreneurs out there. It's very exciting, you know? I mean, uh, We've, we've watched Bill Gates grow up before mm. our very eyes. I did more than you did. Yeah, okay, true. But he's a young man who dropped out of Harvard at 19 with an idea that, uh, unbelievable thought, you know, that every home should have a PC. And the PC hadn't been invented yet. And yet he created the PC, right? And, and created Microsoft, which is an extraordinary organization, right? You look at Steve Jobs at Apple. And uh, Jobs had an unbelievable ability to put the pieces together to market technology in a new and different way. There were lots of devices out there like Apple had, but he had the ability to market them in a particular way and put them together in a particular way. And he was an extraordinary genius at that, right? So we've had that as a backdrop. So if you project forward, who would those others be? Well, you might think that uh, a man named Zuckerberg might be such a person who's thinking about the future. His recent conversation about what his company should become, a builder of communities. Mm -hmm. Right, a builder of community, not just putting individuals together now, but to think about building communities for the future. It's a very interesting thought, right? And the influence that his technology and his company could have on the creation and shaping of new future communities might be very interesting. Why do you think are people so afraid at the same time of a vision like that? I, I, I had the chance to meet him 10 years ago, almost 10 years ago, very young with his vision. And everyone was a big fan of him, this fast-growing company. And now typical German reaction is like, oh, they're so growing so big. Why do you think are these two sides? Because I like that perspective. Yeah, I think one is just because people get afraid of size. Mm. People get afraid of too much influence, right? And too much power. And there are certain people in the world that get concerned about those things, right? But if you look at Jeff Bezos now and what he's doing, right? He's now taken his platform company and he's acquired grocery stores. Well, how do we begin to match that? Where is he going with this? How is he thinking about the world? One can begin to draw some conclusions about what he's doing with his platform company and then bolting on significant other pieces in an environment which creates real power and drive for that platform company. He's added media with the acquisition of newspapers, which all of us thought were dying mm. because of technology, and yet he made a significant investment in newspapers. Why would he do that? So as you begin to think about the architecture of the new world, those are some of the pieces that are interesting to watch. And we may not know the answers yet, but I think uh, watching the direction and trying to determine where it might go is a fascinating process. So I think there are lots of young entrepreneurs out there who are playing on the fringes of the new world order, the new architecture of society, new communities, new political systems potentially new monetary and economic systems that we might not yet see, but others have a view of, and we need to pay attention to those because they're going to revolutionize the societies we now live in.
What do you think of a vision from Elon Musk flying to Mars? Like, what's your opinion on that? I love grand, big <laughs> dreams. And haven't we been the recipient of them already? And I just mentioned one, Bill Gates. Yeah, true. All right? So dream big and then go chase those dreams, right? Why wouldn't we colonize Mars someday, right? In 1963, uh, John Kennedy stood at the White House and said, we want to visit the moon in this decade and land a man on the moon and return him safely. And when he said that, no one believed it was possible. Very few people believed it was possible. And yet in 1969, the first person walked on the moon, Neil Armstrong, right? One giant step for mankind, one small step for man. I mean, it's an amazing accomplishment. We, the human potential is extraordinary at its best. Mm. And so we should not ever deny dreams and think about big picture opportunities. I like that because now in that moment comes a, a scene from Mark Zuckerberg. I listened to one of his speeches and he is referring to that decade and he's referring to a situation when Kennedy visited the NASA Space Center and was asking a guy who was painting parts of the first uh, Apollo uh, rocket and he asked, what are you doing? And his answer was, I'm working to put a man on the moon. So this is also how Zuckerberg is influenced on like big visions and big dreams and it reminds me of uh, sometimes we're a bit dull in in creating small stuff and not making it too big and not dreaming too big but it's it's a great challenge but it goes back to our conversation of a few minutes ago right and that is this notion that we have to spend time thinking yeah and we have to spend time dreaming and then we have to spend time pursuing And if we don't give ourselves the time, if we're so caught up in responding to texts, texts, emails, the, the urgency of the moment, mm. we never get to what's most important. And that's the future. And that's where we have to take our companies, our families, right? Our businesses. But we can only get there if we think about it and if we plan for it. I have two last questions before we have to head to the dinner. We, we can head to the dinner. One is regarding your top 100 list. In Washington, one of the last things you mentioned, you had a top 100 list of things in life to do. And on the flight back, I was like, shit, I don't have a top 100 list. And I, <laughs> I cannot imagine he has it. But you, you told me like you have a lot of things on the list. And <clears throat> you said you made it very early. How did you start that? What's on it? And how did it help you through all the stuff? Yeah. My father was one who encouraged me to set goals and taught me how to set goals. And he was insistent that I have goals. And when I went to high school, he wanted to know what I wanted to accomplish. So those were dreams, future opportunities, right, that I could create. When I went to the university, same thing. He paused me before I went and he said, now, what are you going to accomplish? What do you want to achieve? And so he was constantly. So when I was 19 years old, I was at the university and I stopped long enough one day thinking that. I wanted to write down the things I wanted to accomplish in my lifetime. And it turned out to be a hundred things. I wrote them down and I've kept that piece of paper. You've seen that yeah, piece of paper. It. I've kept that piece of paper and some were silly and soft, but some were pretty grand. And what I found by reviewing those on a regular basis that I achieved them. And I've been able to achieve 98 of those 100. And as a result of just simply writing them down, And then looking at them on a regular basis, it created activity for me and goals for me 
that I could then go out and accomplish. So you accomplished 98 of the 100, yeah. How old are you now? If I'm, I'm, I'm 74. 74. So the last two, do you still... The last two I don't think I'll ever get. The one is that I want to visit every country recognized by the United Nations. And when I made the list, there were only about 160 countries in the United Nations recognized by Today, there are about 212. So it's a moving target. Okay. So I don't, I don't know. <laughs> okay. Countries split, okay. divide, get new names. I may not get there, right? I may not get there, but I'll work hard. I've, I've traveled to about 190 countries. So I've traveled a lot. The second is I want to be president of the United States. And uh, I may have missed my opportunity. <laughs> it may, maybe last year was the time to run. Okay, you should. <laughs> so run. I may have missed my opportunity. Okay. Oh man, I would still work for you. I think you run until ninety. That's easy. So you would be perfect. Last question. Yes. Finished up. Is there anything you're afraid of? No. No. Um, I I don't believe in fear. I love that. I don't believe in fear. I don't live by fear. Right. I live by joy and happiness and uh, achievement. And uh, every day you go out and attack the world and make it a better place. And I don't fear anything. And uh, that's, maybe I should, but I don't. I don't fear the fact that we might have a recession. I don't fear climate change. I don't, those aren't things I worry about. I do everything I can to contribute to the solution of problems and issues, but that's all I can do is everything I can do. And if I do everything I can do, that I'm satisfied with what I've done. Thanks a lot for your time, Warren. Thank you, Christoph. I appreciate it.